This is Resonance 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. How you doing? Tis I, Nick Hennigan, coming at you with another slice of literary London. Although, to be honest, we're going to spend most of it this time in Dublin, in Ireland. Oh, yes, we are. Uh, I shouldn't really do the accent, should I? No, what my surname Hennigan? I'm allowed to. I am, to be sure. But so yes, we're going to um, celebrate the, um, another actual sort of motion uh, and another time in the company talking about W.B. Yeats. Um, W.B. Yeats, of course, spent much of his boyhood in uh, London, in Chiswick, in West London. There's a, a brilliant um, statue there, well, a statue of artwork called Inwrought Light, which if you come out of, get on a district line tube and go west on a district line tube, get off at Turnham Green Station come out the tube, turn right, follow the round road, and on the left you'll see a church, in front of the church there's this brilliant, brilliant um, uh, work of art. Um, not only is it a brilliant work of art, but if you take your smartphone and kind of, you know, click the, the picture at the side, there's a brilliant free WB8 trail that was launched just last week by Cal Haldalat, who's a, an Irish poet who lives here, and Anne-Marie Fife, his wife, they both live in West London. Um, lovely couple, uh, talented, clever, and fans of WB8. So I thought we'd continue the WB8 theme, and this is something that I came across a while ago. It's, uh, it's quite an old recording. Um, it was recorded in actually in Dublin in front of a live uh, audience. Um, and it's Ulick O'Connor, uh, sorry, Ulick O'Connor, uh, Ulick O'Connor, the poet uh, and live audience, talking about, oh, he's in conversation, talking about WB8. So let's go back, 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 back to Dublin many years ago. <laughs> This week, we'll be discussing the life and works of the nation's, if not the world's, greatest poet in the English language, W.B. Yeats. William Butler Yeats was born in Sandymount on the 13th of June in 1865, the son of a well-known painter, John Butler Yeats, and he grew up, for the most part, in Dublin's Harold's Cross and spent holidays in Sligo, his adopted county. Yeats grew up in a Protestant ascendancy family, a society that was, at the time, undergoing an identity crisis. While his family were broadly supportive of the changes Ireland was experiencing, the national revival of the late 19th century directly disadvantaged his heritage, but informed his outlook for the remainder of his life. Yeats's childhood through to adulthood was shadowed by the marginalization of the Protestant ascendancy. These changes had a profound effect on his poetry and writing, and in particular, his subsequent explorations of Irish identity. For a short period, the Yates family moved to London to allow his father to progress his career as an artist. When the family returned to Dublin, W.B. Yates resumed his education in the high school. Ulick, what sort of a student was Yates? Well, he wasn't a student at all in the high school in the sense that he didn't do any work for things he didn't like. But he, he was a, a way ahead in... His father was a very famous artist. Not then. But there's a sort of theory around now that Yeats's father, John Butler Yeats, was the best portrait painter of the 20th century. When he went to America in 1910, at the age of 65, all the American painters of the time, like Sloan and Hopper, they used him as a sort of godfather. So that's the sort of family that he came from on his father's side. And then basically on his mother's side, they were merchants. 
that would be an insult in those days, but today it's so when everybody is. Elizabeth Pollock's fan was her name. We've got to pronounce that word very carefully. Pollock's. P-O-L-L, in case you think it's something else. But uh, Elizabeth Pollock's fan was the daughter of a Sligo merchant. He owned a whole fleet of ships that used to go back and forward between Liverpool. So the Willie always had a free ride, so to speak, when he wanted to go to England. But it's that mixture in the Yates family gentry and commerce that produced this perfect man with his vision and at the same time he had the organization, the perception to be able to say I can read and this is my most desired ability, I can read a balance sheet at a glance. So there was the businessman there and there was the poet. That's what kept the but his, his mother's family were essentially millers and, and in shipping, as you yeah. say, so they weren't Protestant descendancy, constitute no. mistaken identity by some people in relation to the kind of family that he came from. But the other side of the family, his side of the family, was very much Protestant descendancy. Yes, and uh, not too rich either. But you see, at about that time in Ireland, something took place, or was taking place right through, it was just like in Europe, in Italy and in England and in France, they'd all had three different renaissances, if I may use the word in the plural. But uh, in fact, the last one, Ireland never had a renaissance. And just at the end of the 19th century, when the two breeds, the Anglo-Irish and the Gaelic-Irish, were coming together in one, this new Irishman was born, the 20th century Irishman, who was either Anglo-Irish or Gaelic, but the new one, and as all moments of conception have excitement about them, so too, that Ireland was on fire. That's the Ireland of Joyce, Yeats, Shaw, Oscar Wilde, Sean O'Casey, you can go on and on. Three Nobel Prize winners for literature in Dublin, the only city in the world, four if you count James Heaney and Derry. I mean, the place was on fire with literature, and that has something to do with the fact that the new Irishman was actually being manufactured by the various sociological and genealogical things that were happening at the time. I mean, you could say that Swift was the beginning of it, and then the final peak of it for these men. And in Yeats's poems, the most important thing, why I think they're so amazing, and he's the best poet of the 20th century, as Rogers say, and maybe the best in Shakespeare. But why they have this magic thing is because the Celtic idea, the Gaelic idea of poetry was that it wasn't singing songy. But it had rhythm, but that rhythm was the sort of rhythm that Jelly Roll Morton had, offbeat. That is what Yeats really brought into his poetry. We'll be coming on to that again in a few minutes, but one thing I want to just bring you back to is that, in fact, curiously enough, and fittingly enough, given where we are, he had connections with the village of Dundrum, hadn't he? Yes, his two sisters, Lily and Lolly. Joyce refers to them in Ulysses as the weird sisters of Dundrum. But they uh, founded the Kula Press here, which was one of the great printing presses of the 20th century, and they founded the Dunima Guild, where they made rugs and artifacts also famous throughout the world. So the third thing is his cousin, Canon Gibbon, was head of the Protestant church here, and his son, I spoke at his funeral, Monk Gibbon, was also a relative of Yeats, and always pestering him. He wanted to get his poems into the Oxford book called Modern Verse. And of course, he, he thought the best way to do it was through Lily and Lolly, the two sisters. But it's not the way to do it with the brother, to get the sisters to tell him. So poor old Bill Gibbon lost out. But that's the sort of background in Drum Drum. Mm. But I was going to tell you about that way of breaking down language in a very simple way that runs through all his work. It's offbeat. It's counterpoint. And there's a little simple poem that he wrote at the beginning 
that has this in it. There's nothing in the poem really, in the words, but it's magic in the way that it's done, but it doesn't get into what you might call jingle jangle. Had I the heavens embroidered cloth in wrought of golden and silver light, the blue, the dim, and the dark cloth of the night, the light, and the half light, I would spread these under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams. Simple but magic, because it doesn't go into jingle jangle. And that runs, if you want to understand how great Yeats was, one has always had to remember that he's playing on the counterpoint. By the way, he was tone deaf. When the national anthem was played here, he used to have to watch people taking off their hats because he couldn't recognize it. And as I said in the intro, he was reading the changing fortunes of Ireland and obviously the advent of that renewed nationalism to which we were referring, that had a profound effect on him. And what you refer to there in particular is the sort of merging of Anglo-Irish language with the re-emergence of the Gaelic-Irish language. So can you elaborate a bit more on that, in particular the fact that he was influenced by Gaelic, even though he didn't speak it himself? Well, that's a really good point, because how the hell could he be if he didn't speak? But there was this marvellous man around, Douglas Hyde, who founded the Gaelic League. He was the son of a parson from Meath. He had eight degrees from Trinity, a genius. But he also was mesmerized by the Irish language. And where he lived in Roscommon as a young boy, he went round with his pen writing down the poems from old ladies in subterranean huts. He would take down a majestic poem that had come down from the 16th century on the ears of mm. the people. That is where Yeats got it. Now, you may say he had an Irish, but you see, Haida translated his poems by a sort of miracle into English so that they carried this Irish counterpoint. I mean, he had a song, uh, a woman as shapely as the swan, that was the famous said, For thee I shall not die, woman high of name or fame. Foolish men thou mayest slay, I and they are not the same. All that internal rhyme, all that half-beat, Yeats heard it through Hyde. And because Yeats was a genius, he created a new literature out of that. Indeed, and I mean, in many ways it's resonant there of Singh and his obsession yeah. with language as absolutely. well, with the rhythm of Celtic-Irish language, I mean. Yeah, absolutely, the only thing that Singh actually did know Irish, but... He, well, yeah. he did speak it, yeah, unlike WB. Yeah. Uh, you touched there on the Irish Renaissance and the whole uh, development of Anglo-Irish literature and indeed the fusions of Anglo-Irish yeah. writers with people like Sean O'Casey as well coming together. Now, it had a profound effect on the country here in Ireland but what kind of a, a ripple did it send out from this island to the rest of the world? Well, it sent out a ripple that you had something like took place in Italy in the 14th century, like England in the 16th century with Shakespeare and Johnson, like Germany in the 18th century with Goethe and, and Schiller, and like France in the 18th century with Racine and Moliere. That sort of thing, it was like a, you know the storm that... The tsunami is the tsunami, It's like a about. tsunami of the imagination that hits a country. <laughs> yeah. Only it hits it in a lovely way and makes it into something marvellous for a while. What it becomes after, of course, we're beginning to see today. The embroidered cloth. Yes. That was written for Maud Gone, was it not? Or am I wrong in that? No, it wasn't basically because he didn't know her at the time. He's bewitched when he did see her, but that was a bit later. And uh, she was the most beautiful woman in Europe, according to the London Times. She's also a great Irish patriot. She was a member of the Dublin Castle crowd. I actually met her in the 40s. So she was a great grand dame of the Irish Renaissance and 
the most beautiful and striking woman that any revolution ever had. Yates fell, of course, head over heels for her, but she wouldn't marry him. And he said, you're making me unhappy, Maud. And she said, no, I'm not, because out of your unhappiness, you get your poetry. That makes you happy, which is a good female way of getting around. Well, indeed, yeah, yeah. Well, when I met her, she was um, very old. She was about 85. I met her through Sean McBride, very near here at Roebuck House. Sean McBride was a minister in one of the governments and was a friend of mine through the bar. And he, that was her son. And I met her through him. And she was sitting in bed. She had lines about her face like the canals of Mars running through. But those great burning eyes, mm-hmm. what I had, they were like coals at the end of a shaft burning out. And I remember I went there with Michael McLeomore, actually to see her. He was just going to do his famous play in Oscar Wilde. Oh, Oscar Wilde, I remember him very well indeed at the Castle Balls. I came there one day and he said, Miss Gone, Miss Gone, I like your dress because it's green. And green is for Ireland. Mm. And when she said Ireland, she looked up here, you see. And the English put him in jail and they she pointed down below where the English were. And they had no right to do it because he was Irish. And after that, we took our leave. That was how she was in her old age. When, when she was in her young age, she struck Europe, literally. Mm. I mean, she ended her magazine for Paris and she broke, of course, Yeats's heart. He actually proposed three times to yes, her, didn't he? Yeah, uh, yes. uh, although the last time there seems to be some doubt as to whether he was really serious about yes. his proposal or not. The last time, of course, was much later much on. Later, yeah. Yeah, yes. But one of the poems he wrote to her was called The Rose of the World. Mm. And here it is, and I'll follow it up with the terrible five lines of rejection. But the rose of the world is who dreams that beauty passes like a dream. For those red lips with all their mournful pride Troy passed in one high funeral gleam and Ashna's children died. Bow down, archangel, in your dim abode. Before you were, are any hearts to keep? Weary and proud, you lingered by his side. He made the world to be a grassy road under your wandering feet. Then when he was finished, when he knew it was all over, he said, and so many men should remember this, and young folks too. Never give all the heart for love will scarcely seem worth thinking of if it seems certain, for passionate women never know that it fades out from kiss to kiss. He that wrote this knows the cost, for he gave all his love and lost. That's what she did to mm. Of course, we have discussed, and there's no proof one way or the other as to whether it was totally unrequited love in the true sense, because there are various accounts of consummation later in life in Paris. However, maybe that'll be for, for another day to discuss that. Now, here, the struggle for political independence was hotting up. A movement, too, that Yeats actually supported quite actively. I don't mean that he took up either a pike or a gun. But what specifically were his affiliations? Well, he was in the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which was above the IRA at that time. It was a secret organization, really, of armed men. 
And he was in that from the early 1900s. He was an Irish nationalist of an extreme kind. He didn't actually take the gun himself, but he certainly supported them. And after 1916, the people who were out, whom he thought had been changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. Pierce, in that poem, that was called Easter 1916, and he wrote that three weeks after the rising. He called Pierce, he said, that man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. Then McDonough, McDonough, his helper and friend, was coming into his own. He might have won fame in the end, so daring and sweet he seemed. And then there was one who married Maud Gone, John McBride. Mm. And Yeats said, I had thought him a drunken, vain, glorious lout, but he too has changed in the casual comedy. A terrible beauty is born because McBride was executed. He wasn't one of the leaders. But he'd been already out in the Boer War fighting against the British, so uh, the second time they said we better pop him off. So he finished up. But uh, then at the end of that poem, which is one of the great poems in the language, he says, was it an excess of love that tortured them till they died? I write it out in a verse, MacDonough and MacBride and Connolly and Pierce. Now and in time to be, wherever green is worn or changed, change utterly, a terrible beauty is born. And it's a strange prophetic thing there to be able to see that one way or another, whether it was a beauty or not, he knew something had changed that could never be changed back. And he kept at it. He went over to Oxford in 1920. I, I, I know the president of the union there, he was J.R. Collis, Bob mm. Collis's brother, the, the famous surgeon. He told me that. Yeats gave them a lashing over the black and tans of the Oxford Union that nearly set the college on fire. I mean, that was the sort of guy he was. I mean, famous and all, poet and all, relying on the English language and the English people for his living, he still did it. And he was rewarded in a way because in 1922, he was nominated to the Irish Senate. In those days, there were 30 seats to be nominated, and some of them had to go to the Protestant ascendancy. And Yeats, well, not for that, but the fact that he had been a great Irishman was nominated for the Senate. And of course, he, he was terrific there. He, all our beautiful designs and the coins that we had up to recently before the, the later day mix destroyed them. And I may not M-I-X, M-I-C-K-S. Uh, the stamps, the stamps, all those things were preceded by beautiful things that Yeats had succeeded in his capacity as a senator. One of the things there on his joining the Shannon, um, yep. the first Shannon, was in fact largely down to his friend Oliver St. John Gogarty, who yes. of course you wrote the first biography of. And indeed, in his edition of the Oxford Book of Verse, he included 17 of Oliver St. John Gogarty's poems. Yeah. And this was kind of payoff time from Gogarty, yeah. wasn't it? Well, of course, Irishmen don't forget their friends. And T.S. Eliot only had four, he was a bit knocked. But he loved Gogarty because he was a special type of Irishman. He said he liked horsemen, and that was what Gogarty, he stood for that side of Ireland that Yeats admired, and he was a good poetry. I mean, there are Gogarty poems in the Oxford Book of Verse for all time. Of course, Gogarty is always making jokes of Yeats, and perhaps because he got him the job or helped him to get it, it didn't matter, but Yeats was getting yeah. rather grand in the Senate, and he used to walk the streets with his head up in the air. And Gogarty said, Yeats is getting so aristocratic, he's evicting imaginary tenants. <laughs> but Yeats didn't mind it, of course, because he knew it was all part of it. It was all part of fun and good yes. nature, yeah. yeah. And a pair of them Another day, he came into Yeats and had to announce to him something very bad, that he might be his death sentence. He didn't want to show him the report from the doctor. 
The doctor didn't want to show Yates the uh, report. And oh, give it to me, go to it is my, it is my description, it has belonged to me. And he took it and he read it out. The patient has a severe tendency to arteriosclerosis. And Yates said, arteriosclerosis, hmm. Arteriosclerosis, arteriosclerosis, uh, Cogarty, I'd rather have that disease than be Lord of Lower Egypt. And the point was, he had taken the eye out of death by turning the word into a poem all on its own. Now, we're just going back to the Senate, in particular, his political expression in that forum. And there's one speech in particular in relation to divorce, which would have been as apt five or six years ago as it was at the time. Well, it was fantastic. I mean, Yates was a wonderful senator, not just uh, getting our coins designed and our judges' robes designed. He just stood up and he lashed them. Divorce was about to be banned in Ireland under our new state with all our republican freedoms. We were prepared to prevent people from divorcing. And Yates stood up and he strode up and down and somebody who was on the other side said he was magnificent. He lashed us all. And he said, the people, this is the Protestant people of Ireland, the people against whom you have done this thing are no petty people. We are one of the great stocks of Europe. We are the people of Burke, Edmund Burke. We are the people of Swift. We are the people of Singh. We are the people of Emmet and Wolf Tone. We have made most of the language of modern Europe and you will regret it, he said and left the place absolutely shattered. But that was the courage that he had. So of course, there time. were great difficulties at that time in living in Ireland. Gogoli got kidnapped, for instance, in the Civil War by the anti-treaty people. And he and Yates then had a famous ceremony afterwards as a result of this typical piece of what you might call Dublin clubmanship. The anti-treaty people decided to kidnap Gogarty and hold him as a hostage, but he dived into the river out of their hands and up to his neck in the boiling tide, he said he would present two swans to the Liffey if he survived, and he did, and he presented them, and guess who made the ceremony for him? Yates, chanting away at the top of his voice, and he couldn't get the swans out of the box, which is a, so Gogarty gave the box a good root, Gates was saying, Gogarty, what might happen if a vow was to be unfulfilled? There might be godlike response. And Gogarty gave it a boot with his left foot, and they flew up the river like a pair of torpedoes. And that's how the swans were launched. And Dubliners always say today that the swans of the Liffey were Dr. Gogarty's swans, descendants. Hard one to stand over there, I would have yes, thought. I think so. <laughs> As to whether there was ever a swan in this country prior to that. Yeah. But on the other hand, it was one of the things... On the Liffey, though, it was, it, it, Yeah, it was simply for the fact that he said, as he was being swept downstream in the tide, as you he expressed it... He was fulfilling it, a vow. Yeah, that if <laughs> Anna Livia let him go, he would present it with swans, which was quite extraordinary that he was able to recount it or even think of it, because the Liffey in February or January, when that was, 1923, must have been pretty yes, cold. Yes, very so, strong swimmer, though. Yeah. Now, we touched upon his love of Maud Gone, who, as we said, rejected his proposal of marriage three times, but she, too, was politically active. Oh, well, she was arrested in 1916, and she was arrested in 1922, and she and Madame Markovich, there was a lot of madams, was what they, what they called in those days, and they used to call Maud Gone, Madame Gone Mad, and <laughs> they had names for the whole lot of them. But she decided, though, in 1916, she was living now in France, editing newspapers, Helping Ireland, quite a big figure in France. Yeats, as soon as Major McBride 
that was her husband, whom she'd married, had been executed in the Rising, Willie saw his chance. He scudded over to France as quick as he could to propose to Maud, gone to fill the gap, but no go, she wouldn't have him. So the next day, Willie went out on the beach and he proposed to her daughter, Isolde. Isolde, yeah. No good there either. The person that really made W.B. Yeats was Lady Gregory, a great, great Irish woman, a great writer, by the way, not just a great organiser. She and Yeats organised the Abbey, but she was a wonderful writer, wonderful poet, wonderful translator, and a magnificent playwright. She wrote over 150 plays and made the Abbey. But anyway, she wasn't going to see Willie, whom she really loved. She's much older than him, but she loved him. So she got in touch with a friend of both of theirs, Georgie Hydley, a very rich and beautiful English woman, about 30 years, 25 years younger than Yeats, and they got married, and it was a miracle. It worked magnificently. She helped him through the next 15 years to write work, which he never would have done, but she understood him, she had quite a lot of money, and she was absolutely artistic. Again, I met her once, she lived very near in Palmerston Park, and I tried to capitalize on that, I was about 22 at the time, and I kept dropping letters into her door and everything. It's only just before he died that Michael Yates told me that the reason she didn't see me because she thought I was drunk. This is incredible, because I didn't until I was 35, I was a good little pioneer. So there you are. That's what... Over on age, you, you said that, um when he'd been rejected for the third time by Maud Gaughan, yeah. he actually hopped out the next day and proposed for a daughter. Her daughter at the time would have been 17. 17, yes. Yeah. Isolt, yes. Yeah, Isolt, yeah. yeah. Which kind of a cheeky thing for a fellow of his age at that stage to be doing, well, you know? He'd neck like a jockey's bollocks, that's yeah. what he'd say. <laughs> But I think it's important to think that all the time, just about this time, he became the great figure again, the great fighter. O'Casey's Plow of the Stars. Now, we haven't mentioned anything about his, perhaps his greatest thing. He wrote 25 plays. He was the most important figure in the theatre. In fact, Samuel Beckett thought that W.B. Yeats's plays were the beginning of all 21st century drama. And he said that, that in Yeats's, you had, you see, he did total theatre, music, dance, mask, verse, and, of course, drama. Now, Yuri, just to stick with the AIDS for a, a yeah. second in Lady Gregory and Cool and its destruction, which I alluded to there, can it ever be justified that that decision was taken by Galway County Council to destroy the house? And if so, why? Or is there any sane reason to your knowledge as to why it was done? I think there was a sort of, you know, a girthy said about the Irish, that the Irish will always pull down a noble stag, which is a wonderful phrase considering he'd made it in the 18th century. Because we look at Parnell and we look at Collins, anybody with nobility in them. There's another Irish phrase, I can't see why that man hates me. I never can remember having helped him. <laughs> and both of those put together will say why the bloody Galway County Council knocked down the most historic house in Western Europe. And the labor that that lady had gone for Ireland, the way she loved it, her whole life had been given to it, and Yeats, and Shaw, and O'Casey. It was the greatest literary house in Western Europe. And these two Lagons up in Galway did it. I think it was a peculiar hatred of people who loved beauty and people who had helped them. They wanted to put them in their place. That's all I can say. I mean, why not leave it up? You know, don't necessarily restore it, but leave it up. They actually leveled it. Indeed. But this was done in peacetime by ordinary peace commissioners, if you like, of Galway, who were acting in this uh, barbaric way. So that's it. Good night. 
Fascinating stuff, wasn't it? Going back a little bit in history there. Uh, that was recorded live, of course. Yuliko O'Connor talking about WB Yeats in front of a live audience at the Dublin's Mill Theatre. Interesting, isn't it? And we're celebrating the fact there's a new WB Yeats trail now in Chiswick in West London. W4, get to Turnham Green Station on my district line. Come out, turn right, and you'll see. You'll see. You can't miss it. Uh, and that's all we've got time for here as well. Thank you for your company. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, please feel free. Radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk is probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. Radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. And of course, don't forget, if you've got a, a literary event that's happening or if you've written a book or a poem, <clears throat> I've got one or two famous people from Pirates of the Caribbean to talk about to talk to about books. Hmm? Am I piquing your interest? I hope your interest is piqued. It might not be next week, but yes, you know, Jack Sparrow and all that lot. Yeah, I found a brilliant sci-fi book. I should be talking to the author at a later date, and he's quite famous. But uh, thank you for your company. As I say, do get in touch if you'd like to, and I shall see you next time. I'm Nick Hennigan. We're also on bohemianbritain.com, but chiefly, of course, this is Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM. <laughs>